Welcome to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and sustainability. I know that many of you listen to this podcast while running or cycling. Hey Dan, but how many of you cycled to a conference? I know a single person that cycled 764 miles for eight days straight from Switzerland to Spain for this year's KubeCon EU. His name is Johan Geiger, and he is a CNCF ambassador as well as a cloud consultant at peakscale.ch. Johan is a cloud engineer at heart that is all in on sustainability. He is the main reason why I'm super excited to talk about electric cars and Dagger at Swiss Cloud Native Day this September. The venue is Mount Gurten, overlooking Bern, the Swiss capital. Hope to meet you there. After you check out cloudnativeday.ch, open a new tab for fastly.com. This audio is being served with minimal latency from the Fastly Edge location, which is closest to you. There are many more things that you can do with Fastly. Have a look. This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software faster. Diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. More than a million developers in 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, and that includes us. Here's the easiest way to try Sentry. Head to sentry.io slash demo slash sandbox. That is a fully functional version of Sentry that you can poke at. And best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT when you sign up again. Sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT. We are going to ship it. Three, two, one. Last month, I posted the best bits from KubeCon EU 2022. There's a link in the show notes. And halfway through that post, I mentioned about Johan, my favorite person at KubeCon EU 2022. Welcome to Ship It. Hi, Gerhard. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really honored. It's like the first time being on a podcast interview and I'm looking up, uh, forward to it pretty much. Please also know that I'm not an English native speaker, so bear in mind that sometimes I spell things or pronounce things wrongly, but uh, Mm -hmm. let's go with that. I think that just adds more to the charm because I think we spoke like through KubeCon, like all the lunches, like in the mornings you would like meet in the afternoons. I remember that and I could understand everything perfectly well. I had a lot of fun talking to you, but a thing which... Like the story, which really, I don't know, just like fascinated me and which is why, you know, you you were my favorite person because you're the only one that I know to have cycled to Valencia from Bern. Like that is crazy. I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners try to cycle for even like 100 miles or 200 miles, but you cycled 764 miles. That's over a thousand kilometers. And you took eight days. Why did you do that? That's a crazy idea. Why did you do that, Johan? Yeah, well, um, I remember when we talked about it at at, uh, like Valencia. And uh, I think at first you didn't believe me that I cycled from from Switzerland to Valencia. Mm -hmm. Now, the story is um, I was like planning my trip to KubeCon. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, flying wasn't an option so I checked uh, like train options and and other options and well then I came up with the idea well I could cycle to to Valencia would be a great (laughs) great trip and I checked it with my wife with my family if if that was okay to being like absent for for uh, 10 more days and Mm. they said yeah it's okay and here you go so I went I cycled to Valencia I think that's it, right? Like the family has to sign off on this idea and others have to support you. In what way did others support you, which are like outside of your family, like from your job, for example, or like the people that you, you know, depend on you outside of family? What did they say when you told them, you know what, I'm going to be away for like eight days plus the conference, like two weeks? Yeah, I just said like I'm I'm being on on vacation for two weeks. I didn't do that much noise like on social media. I, I considered it, but mm-hmm. it was also like some sort of self time. So so you know, I'm I'm this type of engineer which is a bit introvert, and um, I don't have a problem with like being alone. Even though I I it was still some some time to being like uh, on a trip alone. So I I, mm. I recognized that as well. But there was like some pretty good feedback. I, I got some gifts uh, for for the journey from like some close uh, colleagues and um, mm-hmm. some guys. I also think they didn't believe me that I really that I'm really going to cycle to to Valencia. Mm-hmm. And some guys I, I or, or colleagues I just uh, informed after the trip and they said, "Yeah, wow, that's stunning." <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I mean, I used to cycle when I had way more time than I have today. I used to cycle every weekend, would take the whole weekend and would spend like the Saturday, early morning, late night and Sunday again as, as much as I could do. And I couldn't do more than like 200 miles. And even then, this was like, you know, road and mountain, so combined. So when I hear someone cycling such a long distance, and you're not a professional cyclist, right? Just double checking. No. <laughs> I don't think you are, okay. I mean, you know, like, I don't think many listeners could cycle for 700 plus miles in one go. I think many of us would just like give up after like the first 100 or maybe 200, because like to be in a saddle for that long yeah. is just like something else. Yeah, and it's not as comfortable as your chair, even if you don't have an air on. <laughs> So I know that this is important to you, again, based on what we were talking at at KubeCon. This is important to you from a sustainability perspective. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, if you look like around us, like the, the, the recent heat waves, uh, they're happening. It, it's really getting warm, warmer. It's getting, it's, yeah, it's a fact. So, I mean, cl- climate scientists are, are telling this uh, for a long time. We, we know about it, but nobody's really doing something about it. And um, I've read some books. I, I inform myself uh, based on, on some scientific facts. Mm. And yeah, w- what can you do about it? I mean, there are like a couple of, of problems and one is fossil fuels because um, we just get CO2 emissions based on those. So if you like want to cut uh, CO2 or to reduce your carbon footprint, um, uh, mobility is one of, th- of the major problems. So flying is actually pretty bad also because like in the higher atmosphere, CO2 has a, a more, is more effective at, at heating up our planet. Okay. So reducing the carbon footprint, having a more sustainable life, because I know that you don't drive, which is like another surprising thing. You don't even own a car, right? It's bikes, one, two, 
I, I've seen the one, I've seen the Specialized, which is a very nice one. Three, I would say like three to four bikes at the same time. Three to four bikes, wow, okay. Um, I decided to not to drive anymore mm-hmm. because uh, like if you don't have a car, you can also have a, a huge impact on, on the carbon footprint. And mm-hmm. I know pretty much everybody loves his car, but if you look like on the streets that, I mean, it's been cr- crazy, even for a cyclist, you, you notice that, um, that, that there's a lot of traffic going on. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of congestions and a lot of traffic jams. And uh, we are paying a high price for our mobility. And yeah. we have to solve that somehow. And if you don't even own a car, and I know this is not possible for some places on the earth, but it, in Switzerland, it, it's it's quite possible because we have a good infrastructure. So mm-hmm. it only goes with a good infrastructure. So we have a good train infrastructure, uh, public transports uh, to near everywhere. So there it's possible. Mm-hmm. And that's why we decided to go without the car. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The thing which I like most about this is that you show initiative in how you're going to handle this problem that, by the way, affects us all. The initiative is you showing us how you are solving it. So a responsible person would ask, hey, how can I help solve this? And an optimist will say, we can solve this. You know, they are very optimistic about what they're going to do, but they may not have initiative. And obviously the pessimist and the cynics, I think they're like the the lower ones, like in this in this ranking, is we can't solve the problem. That's it. It is what it is. And the cynics will say they don't want to solve it. They don't have this and they don't do that. And they should be doing these things. While you, you know what? I'm just going to cycle everywhere. <laughs> Let's see what's going to happen. So I really like that. Okay. So we already established that you're not a professional cyclist, but you love bikes. Yeah, I do. Do love bikes, and it's like it's one of my mm. favorite hobbies. Okay. Steve Jobs was saying a very interesting thing about humans and bikes. And we talked about it before we started recording. There was the condor, the human, not that efficient, but put a human on a bike and then they are the most efficient mammal in motion when they are paired with a bike. But I think you had one more, right? There's actually something even more efficient. Yeah. So um, I read this book. um, The name is How Bad Are Bananas? And it gives facts about carbon emissions for various products or activities. And I was pretty astonished to find out that electric bikes are even better because um, an electric motor is even more efficient as a a human cycling a bike um, because Mm -hmm. you have to consider the calories and this means uh, like food and this uh, again is not as, as that efficient as as um, like electric support. It, it sounds counterintuitive. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it is. And yeah, you have to consider the, the energy to produce the battery. There's it's problematic as, as well. Mm. But still, I mean, it's more like more efficient. Okay, I already know what they want for Christmas. But that's another <laughs> conversation with someone else. <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you for indulging me, especially to the listeners. We talked for about 10 minutes about the subject. So I'd like us to switch gears and go into the cloud native landscape CNCF, because I know that you're a CNCF ambassador. So first of all, how did that happen? How long have you been a CNCF ambassador and how are you finding that? So the short answer is um, I was somewhat 
lucky to become an ambassador. Mm -hmm. But I can start with like the longer version, which goes back to 2015. And it started actually with containers. So containers, um, let me tell you that story. Like uh, when a colleague of mine um, demonstrated to me um, how Docker works. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just ran a container, did some, some command and it was so fast. I was blown away. So um, after that, um, I talked at the time I was working for, for an insurance company and there were like some ops people or infra people Mm -hmm. and they immediately jumped on this train. Like, yeah, let's do that. Um, Let's go with uh, containers as the universal format for uh, production as well. And after that, well, the discussion came up, if you have containers, how do you, do you orchestrate those? So there was a discussion um, whether it sh- should be Docker Swarm, um, mm-hmm. Kubernetes or OpenShift. And finally, we decided to go with um, vanilla Kubernetes, which was pretty young. It was already there, but it's still, it was a pretty young project. Mm-hmm. And to, to decide to go with Kubernetes, uh, like at this time for for an insurance company was, was a bold move. Mm-hmm. So that was like between 2015 and 2018. And then in 2018, we thought, yeah, well, there's not only Kubernetes, there's a whole ecosystem um, that, that's going on. And uh, with two colleagues, we went to New York and we met some CNCF folks like Chris Anishik and Cheryl Hong and late Dan Korn and we thought, yeah, well, we have to do something about that as well. So we started our own meetup in, in Bern. So it's the Cloud Native Bern meetup. It's a community now, more than a thousand uh, people. And if, if you know Switzerland, it's not that large. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a small place and that's a large, a huge community for such a small city like Bern. Mm-hmm. And we went on and like made like 30 meetups in, in between and Somehow I, I was lucky uh, to become an ambassador as well, because I, I think because, uh, yeah, I mean, the selection process is not transparent. And I think it's just because of the community work uh, we were doing in, in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. I think that was the main reason, becoming a CNCF ambassador. I really like how you start with, um, it was luck, most likely. And then you go on to describe like the last seven years of your life <laughs> where you pick Kubernetes <laughs> and you do this and you try that and like it works. And I'm sure there's like many, many problems that you have to figure out and then you have to start organizing things. And then 30 meetups later, and I'm sure like a couple of weeks later, <laughs> there you go. It's luck. I became a CSCF ambassador. And I don't, I don't know how. Well, I think, <laughs> I think the, the clues are in all the work that you've been doing and bringing people together. As you mentioned, Bern is a small place, beautiful place, beautiful, beautiful place, but a small one nevertheless. And there's only so many people that are into tech and into the cloud native space. But we do know how tech savvy and infrastructure savvy, specifically the Swiss people are, right? They want things to be proper. They want things to be nice and just so, and they invest in things that, you know, have a future, are sustainable for the long term. So I think there's something there. Yeah, I mean, um, if you compare me to some other mm-hmm. ambassadors in like, I mean, they are working for the big tech companies um, mm-hmm. they are 
influencers, I would say. I'm not an influencer and I don't to intend to be an influencer. But well, hang on. This podcast hasn't gone live yet. <laughs> Let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, my, my motivation to do that is like... Um, it, it's actually fun to bring people together, get engineers to talk to each other. And we also started this thing like Swiss Cloud Native Day, which emerged um, out of, of the meetups when, when we thought, yeah, well, we could invite some famous people to Switzerland to burn so that engineers don't have to go to like uh, conferences in, in the United States. They can just watch them on, on Mount Gordon, which is is the, the location where Cloud Native Day is taking place and they can just come there and it's 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 pretty local. So mm-hmm. in a way it's also sustainable, even though speakers are flying to Switzerland. But um, yeah, you can see them live in your own city. So I really like how your values and principles are aligned and they're all coming together. <laughs> Sustainability, long term, like the long term vision, uh, sustained effort. A lot of things coming together there. So you mentioned about Swiss Cloud Native Day, which is a conference, one-day conference. How long has it been going on for? So um, we planned the first edition like in 2020. Mm -hmm. And we um, did some peer pressure on Twitter for getting Kelsey Hightower to Switzerland. And he actually agreed like mm-hmm. publicly on Twitter. Yeah, I'll come. Okay. And we were so excited to have Kelsey because he's such an amazing uh, speaker and uh, he has so, I mean, you had the, had him on the show as well and he did those cubecons. Yeah. And yeah, it was like, we didn't believe it. Kelsey's something else for sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I'm still in contact with him, but uh, the problem was in 2020, COVID, Corona happened. Mm-hmm. So we had to postpone and we said, yeah, well, we don't do this edition. Um, we don't do it virtually. Mm-hmm. We postpone it for a year. So uh, we had like to talk to the sponsors and they were okay with it. And we shifted everything to 2021. And mm-hmm. yeah, so last year we had our first edition and from the feedback uh, we got, I mean, it's not only myself, it's like a team of around um, six to 10 people working, preparing for it all. Um, I mean, it's not a professional, it's a community event. So we do it all, all in, in our spare time. We're enthusiasts and we, we believe in cloud native. So yeah, it happened. And uh, the feedback was like, the atmosphere was like, it, it, yeah, it, it was vibrant. And it was it was really, really one of the best experiences I had in my professional life. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm so sad that I missed the first one, but I'm not missing the second one. So that's happening this year in September, 14th of September. Absolutely, yeah. And two very important questions. Are masks required and will there be coffee? Oh, so the first <laughs> first question is pretty controversial because um, there was a lot going on even for, I mean, I talked to the organizers for KubeCon as well uh, behind mm-hmm. the scenes. I, I cannot imagine what they went through and it was a difficult decision. So currently no masks are required because uh, regulations in Switzerland don't um, ask for them. And we also informed all the speakers and asked them um, multiple times if that if, if that was okay for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's another, there are variants coming up and it, it might be possible that we have to do a mask mandate, but at the time there's no mask mandate. Yeah. So people, it's it's voluntary. That's what I know. So the reason why I ask is because you're right, it is controversial. 
And I think at KubeCon EU, there was like a whole controversy around it and like follow-ups and, and, and all sorts of things. So I am curious to tell that story and, and we will come back to that story in another episode when we look at the facts, when people are maybe less in the heat of the moment, you know, things are being said and things are being pulled all like together. So we will go there at the right time. But for now, I think it is important to emphasize that if, for example, your region where you are doesn't require this, like there's no regulation to require this, it's very difficult to force people to wear them because that's what effectively you're doing. And some people may not be okay with that. And then I think you will fall on one side or the other. And then what do you do? It's a very tough decision to make. So if you comply with your local laws, I think that's a good first step. I think it's a good default. And then making sure that everyone is comfortable with that decision and giving them enough time to express their concerns, you know, to go through those conversations so that people are not surprised, which is why I'm asking you now, uh, which is at least a month, uh, maybe even more before the conference, depending on when this airs, just so that people know what is happening, why this is happening. And I know that you have on your website, I think there's something where you mentioned this, like on the cloudnativeday.ch. Yeah. And again, obviously this can change. So that's like, that's like another thing. But right now you're just complying with local regulations. Masks are not required. They are voluntary. You know, everyone can wear them or anyone can wear them. But that's where we stand on this. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will only like add a mask mandate, but we won't remove it like it happened uh, at, at KubeCon where they planned to remove it and then re-added it because of the feedback. And yeah, we want, want it to be like an inclusive event and uh, it's a pretty hard job. job. And mm. I think this is like one of the most toughest decisions at the moment as an organizer, whether you're requiring masks or, or not. Yeah. And maybe an answer to your second question, of course, there will be coffee. I mean, no conference without coffee. So the reason why I ask that is because these two are linked. It may not seem they're linked, like having masks and having coffee, but if you are forcing masks, and the catering staff says, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do if people that you know will be there, like, like the baristas or whatever the case may be, right? Like the people that provide the coffee, the food, all that. If they don't want to wear masks, but they have to, what do you do then? <laughs> Anyways, we will, we will come back to this. I mean, I don't think there will be baristas at this conference because it's, it's a small one, as you mentioned. Community run, enthusiasts, people doing it in their free time which I'm a big fan of. I really understand the power of that. You know, people doing it because they believe in it, not because, you know, they're paid to do it. So I really like that story and I really like that angle. And also I like the engineers angle because this is a conference from engineers for engineers, right? Because it's run by engineers. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Who are the organizers? I mean, it's you, but you're like, okay, we already established, so not a professional cyclist, CNCF ambassador, conference organizer, but also engineer. So tell us a bit more about that and about your colleagues that you're organizing this conference with. Yeah, I mean, I'm really enthusiastic about engineering. So if I would have to describe my professional life in one word, it would be like engineering. It doesn't even matter. It's, it's like mm -hmm. computer science and not uh, civil engineering. It's just engineering. I, I love this stuff and I've, I'm doing this. I mean, I got a degree in computer science and the other colleagues are also like uh, from different companies in, in around Bern. So when we started the meetup group, it was actually Philip 
And I, Philip, was he's working at, at an insurance company in, in Switzerland, and mm-hmm. he's also the, the guy who, who co-founded this meetup. And he's also he's like more from the infrastructure. I'm more like from the software engineering background. So I, I developed applications for quite some time. I am still developing, but it's more like infrastructure right now. And we went, we also went into like this DevOps movement, but um, we thought, yeah, Cloud Native is a, a bit more catchier for engineers because DevOps is also more about process and and how to work together and methodology. So mm-hmm. we more, I mean, engineers like to talk about technology, to be honest. And so so the the group of organizers grew. We thought, yeah, well. We need uh, like representatives from the major companies in, in Switzerland. So we reached out to like to SBB, which is the Federal Transportation System, or Swisscom, which is one of the major telco providers in Switzerland. Um, so we formed a group to be like uh, that. Yeah, that major provider or major companies are being on the committee. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone, not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum are responding to an incident. They can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency, declare and mitigate incidents all from inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident runbooks, they let you create custom automation rules, convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. You can create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. The next step is to try it free. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. No credit card is required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. So you mentioned that you're an engineer at heart. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to be an engineer? I mean, I love problem solving. It's like solving puzzles all the time. And it's like, I mean, once you get into the zone, it's pretty difficult to get into the zone, but this experience is getting into the zone and then time just goes by. I love it. Hmm. What was the last problem when you fell this way? Uh, Yesterday. Okay. What did you do? Tell us about it. So currently I'm working like on supply chain security mm-hmm. and I dug into like um, uh, six door, which is an a- amazing project, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing uh, Go pro- programming at the, at the moment. And I had some problem to solve with like Go libraries. So I wrote some extensions so that we can promote container images from one registry to the other. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the same way as Alfonso told uh, us at KubeCon about promoting images for Kubernetes releases, but it's like for 
for a, a company I'm working for. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is um, there are quite some libraries like Go Container Registry, and then there's Auras, and then there's Sixdoor, and they are kind of difficult to handle. So you have to dig your way through through a solution. And I was like, everything was, was working. I, I started, um, I mean, I tried to do test-driven development, which is not that, that easy if you're really trying to practice it. And I wrote my unit tests, everything was okay. They were green, I was happy. I did some refactoring, it was still green. And then I tested it on production and it, boom, it, it failed because I didn't consider the authentication of, of, of the registry. So oh. I'm, I'm not done with it yet. <laughs> okay. I know what you mean. When things come together, you keep digging and think, oh, I have it. Ah, oh, damn it. No, there's like, forgot about this one thing. And then the deeper you go, the more you start appreciating how all those elements come together. And when you have that moment, when everything is clear, you see the whole picture, it's almost like seeing the matrix. You see how things combine, you have like that mental image of how everything interacts, you have an image of all the potential failures that can happen, and you don't have to obviously cater for every single one of them, but like let it fail, let it crash, whatever the case may be, be very deliberate about what you will handle and what you won't handle. And again, like the happy path, keep focusing on that. So while making the failures very clear when they happen again. So the engineering, like how do you build good systems? How do you build something that's reliable? Something that, you know, will keep doing what it's supposed to do in the simplest way possible forever, right? <laughs> I really like that moment. I really, really do. Yeah, I think it's, it's an art. So um, yeah, I once uh, called myself also like a software artist, even in, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm the best programmer. I also don't think I'm, I'm the best engineer, but mm -hmm. still I love it. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's a small correction which I have to make. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know when you say Alfonso, I know exactly who you mean <laughs> because you mean always Adolfo. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, that, oh, no, that's so good. Because, no, 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 that's that's good because like in, in your in, in your brain, I I know your connection that, that you've made, and I keep telling you, do you mean Adolfo? Ah, oh, yes, yes, I do mean Adolfo. <laughs> Sorry, that's oh yeah, I mean Adolfo, of course, yeah. yeah. I, I, I I consistently do get that wrong, and I don't do it on purpose so sorry to Adolfo sorry to Puerco because he also <laughs> goes by the name of Puerco so Adolfo Garcia Vitia uh, the full name episode 53 where we're talking about securing case releases Adolfo we we really enjoyed both of us talking to you at the chain guard booth uh, Priya was there and I think a couple others were there but I remember like the four of us talking that was a great conversation and uh, when Johan says uh, Alfonso he means Adolfo okay <laughs> just so that you know he has a very special name for you and I really like that yeah. you know you having a spell and no one else will call you <laughs> Alfonso except Johan <laughs> that's a great one <laughs> so really my apologies and um, um, Adolfo is actually now I got it right Okay. Yes, Adolfo. Okay. Yes, Adolfo that's it. He's also he also loves cycling, so he does it uh, like in in uh, Canada and and the United States, and mm. he's enthusiastic about that one as well. And he knows what it means to do um, uh, multi journey trips. Kindred spirits, kindred spirits, right there. Okay, so now he needs to find a name for you that only he calls you that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're even. <laughs> I think that's what needs to happen. Okay, so you mentioned six door. How do you use Sixth Store in your day-to-day? -day? 
So I would say like, or maybe it was a tweet from Chris when he tweeted like 2022 is like the the year of, of the S-bomb and it's all about supply chain security. We had this mm-hmm. these attacks and um, quite some companies um, emerged and mm-hmm. they are trying to tackle this, this problem. And um, one thing I especially like is like specifications and there's like the salsa specification which is an amazing point to start to harden your mm-hmm. your pipelines, essentially. So mm-hmm. it gives you a framework, it gives you levels, it gives you instructions what to do. Mm-hmm. And if you start doing that, you will soon find out that SIGSTORE is um, the underlying technology which enables all those um, recommendations. Yeah. Okay. And how do you use it day-to-day? So how do you use uh, SIGSTORE and SBOMBs in your day-to-day? Where do they fit in? So we started to harden the pipelines and uh, a colleague of mine and me um, tackled this problem and uh, we thought about, yeah, well, we're already building containers. Let's create those attestations, those manifests, Mm -hmm. assign them and put them into a container registry as well. And that's what we what we did. Okay. So we didn't do this only with uh, like provenance from Salsa, but also for the S-bombs and Mm-hmm. We think it's like if you have a look at like vulnerability management, mm-hmm. um, what you did like prior to or currently doing is like you're scanning your images, for instance, and and you check it with a vulnerability uh, database in one step. And mm-hmm. what's going on right now is like this this step is becoming two steps. Like first you create the SBOM with all the components uh, of your image. Mm-hmm. And then in a second phase, you are like scanning against or checking against vulnerability databases. And this is a, a way more powerful possibility because it gives you more options and you can can check, for instance, um, just the SBOM and uh, check what's being deployed in production. You just have to know which artifact is being deployed in production. You don't have to scan it at runtime and then get the SBOM and check it against the vulnerability database. Okay. So when you say integrating with pipelines, hardening your pipelines, what is the pipeline for you and what are you running through this pipeline? So yeah, pipelines, uh, it's one of my favorite topics. Um, I do CICD for a pretty long time. I mean, I remember uh, when the book came out uh, 2010 from Jess Humble and Dave Farley when uh, continuous deployment and um, Mm. they established this metaphor of the deployment pipeline. Mm-hmm. I did it before 2010, but they gave it a name and some instructions how, how to do it. And I was pretty amazed. So what is a deployment pipeline? It's actually, yeah, I mean, Chess Humble says it's like, I, I don't know if I can quote him correctly, but um, you have like some, some idea or yeah, it's the ability to get essentially changes, no matter which type uh, of change into production in a safe manner. Okay. And you do it like with a, with a stages or steps. So the pipeline gives you feedback and um, early on it gives you quick feedback and afterwards it gives you like slower feedback. And uh, nowadays I think deployment pipelines are like pretty much commodity, even though people still confuse uh, continuous deployment with uh, continuous delivery, for instance, they don't know the difference. What is the difference? <laughs> Let's go for that. Yeah, continuous deployment is if you go into production uh, in a fully automated way. So your pipeline is fully automated. You don't have like push button de- deployments in between. And co- uh, continuous delivery is like a, a, 
has those uh, safeguards where people can say when to go into production. It's it's also automated mm. almost all, all the way down, but uh, the deployment of production, for instance, uh, can depend on some people deciding to go into production and push that button. Yeah, okay. Which one do you mostly use and why out of the two? Do you use them both or? Yeah, like five to 10 years ago, it was more like uh, continuous delivery because um, yeah, change and, and and bringing that change into, into enterprises. And now I'm striving for uh, continuous deployment because I think it's one of the best ways to to ship software. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And do you go to staging environments or other environments before you go to production or do you go straight into production? No, it's with, I mean, um, I'm talking now about enterprise customers I'm working for mm -hmm. and um, it always has like staging environments. It's like a requirement to have those in between and to do some quality work in between. Yeah. Have you ever pushed into production a change using a continuous deployment pipeline that went through staging fine, but then there was a problem in production. Have you had that happen? And why was that? Yeah, security was one thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't have an example at hand, but um, it, it happened to me or some, some uh, yeah, um, there weren't enough tests, for instance, that happened too. So that's uh, some some examples that which happened, and then you go into production or what I didn't have. I have to admit is like uh, um, production load or something like that. Um, it, it's more like wrong assumptions or a lack of of a certain type of test. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it can fail in production, and you can also test in production. The question is, what you're doing after you fail in production? I mean what the deployment pipeline gives you is the ability is to revert and go back to the previous state that worked. And uh, that's, that's a powerful thing. So you have to be able to react up on that, but even that one can fail. I mean, I think a colleague of mine had it just yesterday. Um, uh, I was working on some, some infrastructure and I removed some code from the pipelines mm -hmm. And he told me, yeah, well, there's a pipeline failing. I, I don't know why. I thought it was because of my change and it wasn't. I mean, he reverted it and it was still failing. And it was actually because of my change. I didn't notice. So mm. my bad, I, I did a mistake and I, I immediately rolled it back. Mm. It wasn't a critical component, but still, I mean, it shouldn't happen or you should monitor it and, and go back if, if there's a problem. Yeah. Whenever I think of continuous deployment, if there is another environment before production, I think of it as, again, my perspective, a lot of work that needs to happen to get it as close to production as possible, knowing that it can never be production because of the amount of traffic. So production will always have a special amount of traffic. There's always something special about production. And then I'm trying to think, what can I do to push straight into production? And then I try to configure everything and approach everything in a way that I know that this will go into production. So then what is the smallest amount of change? How can I ship slices of a feature or slices of whatever I'm doing, whether it's a fix, whether so that it's always out there, it always goes straight into production. I, I, I can, and I can start figuring out, am I going in the right direction? Because whenever there is like another environment, now you have to keep it in sync. There's data and we know how difficult that is. 
So if you need to test something, test it locally, sure, if you need to. I think having a production which spans more than one system so that, you know, you can basically take one of 10 or one of two, whatever the case may be down and update it. Uh, so this is like, like the canary deployment. I prefer those approaches because you're always checking whatever you're doing. You're checking your assumptions because that's what they are against the real thing not something which is pretending to be the real thing. There's a lot of hidden work in staging or in like other types of environments where if if you invest all the time into making sure that your changes go out into production, the blast radius is as small as possible, that's my preference. Let's put it that way. It's like not, you know, what I think is better, it's like what I prefer. And I've always had good success with it. So I know that most enterprises will not go for that. They say, no, no we can't do that. Like we can't sign off whatever regulation we need to sign off on. We need to have this other environment. But then the question is, so how much is that environment costing you? And I don't mean to run it. I mean to operate with these two things or maybe even more things. So what do you think about that, Johan? I think one has to distinguish between like corporates and startups and small companies um, because Mm -hmm. um, startups and small companies, they have like a system which is not, I mean, it may be large, but then they're not a startup anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, let's say like, I, I would prefer to do it that way, as you told as well, but it's not viable for like corporates because yeah, mm. they are not ready yet to, to do that. And they don't want like customer impact or think that, that that's a bad thing. But um, at the same time, they are accepting like maintenance windows over the weekends. So mm-hmm. the whole system for a, for a corporate is not working like e-banking or something like that for a whole weekend. And if I try to do e-banking oh, at ex- exactly this weekend, then I think, oh, no, um, I, I would have done like to do my tasks. Now I can't. I have to postpone it. I mean, that's that's some sort of an outage, too. So mm-hmm. why not having like smaller outages, but uh, keeping them minimal? And I also like culminating or aggregating uh, changes into one big change is a, is a much higher risk than, than just doing it continuously. I fully agree with you. But I think that's the thing. If you have an outage, it's an incident. So if you have to update something, and as a result of you updating that thing, you're causing an outage. You have an incident. Yeah. You're not updating anything. You're not, not doing anything good. You're actually doing something bad. So why is your system designed and um, running in a way that you pushing a change is create, creating an outage? That's the problem. Absolutely. Not the fact that you're pushing out uh, updates. So how do you architect truly resilient systems that, you know, change without them going offline. So, and I'm thinking about humans. Biology and humans are fascinating where the cells change every seven years. Yeah. You never die, <laughs> right? When you regenerate, when you, when you, so you're continuing to function, all the body functions don't get affected, but you're regenerating continuously and constantly. And you're always, you know, like, a better version, hopefully, of yourself, smarter, more experienced, hopefully keeping those workouts, cycling, whatever you do <laughs> to keep healthy and energized. So why shouldn't a system that is like an like a well-engineered system, because we're talking about engineering, what does it mean to engineer systems so well that it will not go offline? 
What do you need to do so that it doesn't go offline? Yeah, when we talk about like high availability or stuff like that, I mean, we don't have a second heart. I fully agree with you. I mean, we don't have a failover heart or uh, mm -hmm. two hearts running concurrently. And We should, <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> I think we should. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we can inspire um, ourselves by, from, from biology and it, it's mm -hmm. always a, a good thing. And um, you mentioned it like application architecture. How do you design a redundant system? How do you architect? And mm -hmm. It has some cost, but I think we should do it mm. nevertheless. I mean, architects should be able to to de design those systems. And I mean, there are like good guidances, like the 12-factor app, which tells you how, how to design your system, keeping it stateless and so on. I mean, mm. handling state is always uh, the hard part. Like, yeah. Yes, for sure. Writing stateless systems is, is one thing and mm. um, you can scale them horizontally. That's not, not a problem, but... Um, Handling state is like a huge challenge, I would say. Yeah, but I think even for that, so if you, for example, if you had read replicas, you know, you can continue operating at like in a degraded way, you know, uh, for a bank, what would that mean? Well, for a bank, again, I, uh, you know what? No, that's, that's, it's too long. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> going to open that kind of words. I'm not going to open it because I know like there's like so many things there, regulations as well, penalties, uh, all sorts of things. And then people say, okay, we have to do this. We have to do that. And people are just scared, but I see a lot of fear there. And I see a lot of like, this is too hard. Let's just do what we've always done. Maintenance windows, okay, job done. <laughs> and then, you know, someone has to be around during those maintenance windows. Anyways, um, for another podcast, maybe. Not another podcast, for another episode, <laughs> maybe. So what projects from the cloud native landscape do you like most? And it's, it's, it should be the ones that you use day in, day out. I think we've already established it is Kubernetes. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I like Kubernetes, even though... There was recently a blog post, I, I think it was also on Hacker News, um, why mm -hmm. Kubernetes is not re recommended for startups because it has some complexity. And I've also heard about mm. fly.io. I mean, so let's come back to, to one thing and it's containers. Uh, containers are a good thing and they, they, they really, they were a game changer. Mm -hmm. Kubernetes is one way to run containers, containers, but there are many other ways like serverless um, solutions, and then public cloud providers have their platforms. Mm -hmm. There are PaaS solutions. So I would, in essence, it's containers. Yes, we agree on that. There's some nice, really nice things about Kubernetes and, and they are not that complex. Like Kubernetes supports deployment strategies for, for instance, pretty well. Mm -hmm. You just have to know how to do it. And then it's actually pretty easy. I mean, it supports rolling updates out of the box. I mean, yeah, you can just do it. And yeah, apart from like containers and Kubernetes, um, I'm working a lot with uh, Terraform. I think it's also like for infrastructure as code provisioning the best solution, mm -hmm. even though Terraform has some flaws in my, in my opinion. I, I don't like, uh, what I don't like about it is that you have to manage separate state. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you compare it to the GitOps tools, they don't maintain separate state. I ju you just have like the state in, in Kubernetes and then you have the desired state in, in, in a Git repository. Mm -hmm. And this makes um, Terraform handling a bit more difficult, but it's, I think it's still the best solution that's available for infrastructure as code. When I was using Terraform, I was committing the state file 
in the repository. And it wasn't great, but at least I could see the state there. So even before GitOps became as mainstream as it is today, uh, there was something about committing the state of whatever's managing your infrastructure. And that case was Terraform. So I think in 2019, something like that, maybe 2018, we used to do this. And I remember that. And I was thinking, hmm, I wish this was not as difficult. But also because you had like two sets of changes, most often you had like a lot of unrelated changes um, when it comes to Terraform reading the state from the resources it was managing. But the thing about Terraform, which always got me, was the plugins. Oh my goodness me, like the amount of pain that I had like upgrading plugins and they stopped working and I didn't pin it correctly and oh, now I have to change my config. That was painful for me. Or the API that the plugin is using has changed, so you have to upgrade the plugin. That was the one thing which uh, which was a pain point for me. But uh, tell us more about you, because it is about you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the problem with like changing APIs, I mean, you have some, you're using some provider typically for like a public cloud mm -hmm. and the public cloud, the hyperscaler is like changing APIs and you run into some problems. It, it, this, this can happen pretty, pretty often yeah. and that's, but it's not a problem of Terraform. It's actually more a problem yeah. Of, of, of the provider or um, of the APIs, and this makes it hard to handle. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base, transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. They can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base, and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link will be in the show notes again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. And by our friends at Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. And I'm here with two of the co-founders from Acuity, Jesse Suen and Alexander Matusenchev. So the Acuity platform is in beta right now. You guys have some big ideas you're executing on around Argo CD, managed Argo CD, Kubernetes native application delivery, and the power of GitOps. Help me understand the what and the why of what you're doing right now. So we started Acuity because we saw what was happening in the Kubernetes community, the challenges that people were facing about developer experience. And having run Argo CD for Intuit for a couple of years, we knew it took like a small team to build this and scale it and provide a performant solution for the developers. And so at Acuity and the Acuity platform, what we're trying to do is, the first thing we're trying to do is actually provide Argo CD as a fully managed solution to our users. But 
that is just actually the start of things. And we actually want to take the next steps on improving the whole GitOps and developer experience and providing new tools and ecosystems around Argo and Argo project. Yeah, that's right, JC. So Argo CD is just the beginning, but every company eventually needs way more tools integrated into the DevOps platform. And that's what we're hoping to deliver with Acuity platform. So we're hoping to provide a great user interface that enable developers to achieve what they need in a matter of just a few clicks. But we also want to make Argo CD enterprise ready. What that means is our customers would get audit and insightful analytics out of the box without configuring anything. That's what we did at Intuit, and we learned that it was not so easy to do. And that's what we're hoping to solve for multiple organizations. Very cool. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Alex. Again, listeners, this is a closed beta. Check it out. Acuity.io slash changelog. Head there and see what this platform is all about. Again, Acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. So Terraform, what else is in your toolbox, in your favorite cloud-native toolbox? Yeah, I'm used to work with GitLab and GitHub uh, mm -hmm. a lot as well. It's, one can discuss whether these are cloud-native technologies. I mean, what is, by the way, what is cloud-native? Um, there is a definition, but uh, it makes it still hard to grasp. What is cloud-native to you? Let's start there. That's a good one. It's nowhere mentioned, but I think Kubernetes or the way how Kubernetes works and containers is like uh, a major part of it. And it's like generalized. I mean, cloud native is mostly about application architecture to leverage like the, the possibilities that you have in cloud environments. So mm -hmm. the whole, I mean, there's the cloud native landscape, which mentions tons of projects um, uh, a lot of innovation is going on. Um, mm -hmm. First there was Kubernetes, then there's there was like um, GitOps, and then you have the whole monitoring part with like Prometheus and Jaeger. I mean, there are so many areas to cover. And um, mm -hmm. to me, it's like the modern way to tackle application architecture for like modern cloud infrastructures, yeah. Mm. In, and uh, open source is a very important thing as well. And also like that there's like a neutral ground with the CNCF and we don't have to, to face proprietary te technology anymore. Yeah. Do you use something day to day, which is not in the cloud native landscape, something that is dependable, something that works for you? And I don't mean like your code editor or anything like that. Something for your applications when you run them, for your stateful services. Is there something which is outside of the space? No, maybe my development environment, I'm, I'm sticking. I mean, I'm doing Go development and previously I was like a Java developer and uh, got some proficiency there, mm -hmm. but I'm still using the JetBrains IDE and I think it's, it's still the best one available. I mean, I see so many people using Visual Studio Code and mm -hmm. it's nice, it's really nice. But if you know the, the possibilities and the power of, of a JetBrains mm -hmm. IDE, it, it's, it's like, it's just a different level. You still haven't changed my mind. I'm not giving up my Vim. <laughs> not now, not ever. <laughs> I think I think where we start uh, in our careers, like you mentioned Java, and if you spend like a significant amount of time in a specific community, I think to some extent that determines your 
environment, your development environment, because you become familiar with something and you like it and you just find ways that work for you. And then after five, 10 years later, the chances of you switching are slim because you already like you do things automatically, don't even think about it. And if someone asks you like, hey, how did you do that? I don't know. I just did it. It's like magic, you know, like my editor did it for me. And it's actually you doing things like maybe hitting some keys, some shortcuts, or, you know, clicking some buttons, whatever the case may be. The point is that I think a lot of people that do like infrastructure work, they'll be like Vim or Vi or Nano, maybe Emacs, of course, you do have to do that. The point being, depending on where you start, you may start going in a certain directions and then changing that becomes so expensive that you may never have the chance, time opportunity, whatever the case may be. So JetBrains ID, I, I remember some people were using it, Goland as well. I think that's somewhat, somewhat related. Yeah, it's one of those, one part of their tool suite, yeah. yeah. I, I actually started with Eclipse and um, that was uh, when I like finished my studies and a colleague early on told me, yeah, well, as a Java developer, you have to switch from Eclipse, which is, which is open source to a proprietary tool chain, uh, which, yeah, I didn't fit into my my mental model. So, um, mm. I, I stuck with uh, Eclipse and, mm-hmm. but eventually I, I changed and I have to say, I also use like VI or Vim, but it's more like for, if I'm on the terminal and I have to edit mm. quickly, edit some, some text file, but for development, it's still uh, Goland and so on. Yeah. Okay. If we switch gears a little bit now, and we go away from our development environments, because I'm sure we can talk about it for at least another hour, and then I can start showing you my Vim plugins and oh look at this, <laughs> how it integrates with that and NVIM and oh, there's like a huge difference. And okay, so uh, there's actually a pretty good episode, which I was looking up recently, uh, why we love Vim. And I'm sure there's there's a few others on the changelog that was 450. But um, I think IDs, they do have their place as well. So I'm very accommodating when it comes to them. I used to be more um, like in one camp versus the other, but not anymore because I, I did come to appreciate some of the things like seeing someone use Goland or seeing someone use JetBrains professionally, you realize there's something there. There's like some craft that happens, like the, we're being artists with our editors and it's a very personal thing. So if you use a palette knife or a brush or a chisel, you know, it is what you do. <laughs> you know, it's still art at the end of it. Okay, so switching gears, what are you most excited about in the cloud native landscape this year? Is there something coming or something new? I mean, we already mentioned supply chain, we already mentioned S-bombs. Is there something else besides those that you are uh, excited about? Yeah, so besides like supply chain tools, I already mentioned like Six Store, which is really amazing work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it still has some rough edges, I have to say, but uh, it's getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Cilium is doing a pretty good job as well. Mm-hmm. And they are starting to um, solve the service mesh problem from a different perspective, which might be another game changer. Because like service meshes, they have been around. There are quite some solutions like uh, Linkerd and Istio and Console from HashiCorp, but they're not being widely adopted in my opinion. I may be wrong, but um, I think... yeah. They add another layer of complexity onto Kubernetes, for instance. And Cilium solves this on at the kernel level. So, I mean, they're replacing the IP table stuff that's going on with 
eBPF, which is a lot more flexible and they have a lot of, how do I put it, um, new possibilities are opening up to solve problems. Okay. Well, I'll make sure to dig into that when I talk to Liz and Thomas in a future episode, uh, because I think there's something there. I think eBPF grew in, in very many directions, unexpected ones. And I think service meshes, as you mentioned, it has always been, from my perspective as well, a controversial space because it adds a lot of complexity and very few are able to pull it off successfully. But it is a space worth watching for sure. And I really like what you mentioned, because from your perspective, based on the projects that you're involved with, based on the people that you know, it's like your experience, but still within an area. And I like that regional feedback from what you're seeing, where you're at. I really like that perspective. I think those are really valuable because based on where we are in the world, we each see things slightly differently based on our communities, based on the people that we work with or know. So, okay. That's a good one. What about the CI/CD space? Is there something in the CI/CD space that you've been using for maybe a while and it works well? I mean, is it GitLab because you mentioned it or is there something else? Yeah, I, do, I don't work directly with it anymore, but I used to work it for um, several customers. It was uh, like Argo CD mm-hmm. or let's say um, GitOps tools. I mean, Flux as well. Uh, they share the GitOps engine. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's this GitOps approach and it's pretty amazing too. Mm-hmm. And what's not being solved yet is how to combine GitOps with deployment pipelines. Mm-hmm. That's an open question in my opinion. There's no no solution to that. But uh, what GitOps um, excels at is they do not only concentrate on like delivering or shipping software, it's also running software. So this this part of the software development process, so to speak, is not being covered. I mean, you just deploy and then the pipeline is over. Mm-hmm. So w- what do you do if, if something fails in, in, in production? Do you just redeploy or... And GitOps is um, actually the tool which excels at, at, at uh, this mm-hmm. problem. What do you like most about GitOps? The, um, it's declarative. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was skeptical about declarativeness, like is that even a word? I don't know, like a, a couple of years ago. But um, when I try to understand like the design principles of Kubernetes, uh, for instance, and it's purely declarative. I loved it. And on top of that, it's like a natural step forward. You just tell what you'd like to have, but not how. And and the system tries to find out what to do. And it, it's much more powerful because you can essentially automate operation operational tasks with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that continuously converges, as you mentioned, is really powerful. You don't have to tell it what to do and keep doing this. You just tell it, this is what I want you to do, and it will figure it out for you. You're right. That mind shift is really important, the imperative versus declarative. I remember Ansible. Ansible third felt very imperative to me. Run this, then run that, then take... No, no, no. None of that. Just like, tell it, this is this is the state of the world, just make it so. Exactly. I mean, your infrastructure um, has to support it, and uh, mm-hmm. that's not an easy task. But um, if the system itself can figure out how to self-heal itself... Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, it's um, you get more automation and it's it's uh, uh, much more powerful and, uh, and flexible, I would say. Yeah, I also like about GitOps that uh, the desired state is maintained in a Git repository, hence the name, mm. and gives you full traceability. And you don't 
do manual actions. It's all everything is automated. I like that one as well about GitOps. Mm-hmm. And I even I, I mean, we set up a system. It was for a finance institution, which was a, which had to do PCI compliant and. They couldn't do like deployment pipelines because you would like push into production and this was like prohibited. Mm-hmm. So um, GitOps actually solved that problem with uh, like this firewall in between where you just deploy indirectly by committing into a infra config uh, repository. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pull versus push model, I think that's also like a really important distinction where your CI/CD pipeline doesn't deploy anything, it just makes a commit and there's like something that watches what is the desired state and then it applies the desired state. But you don't reach out into production tell it like run this thing directly. It's the indirect, this is the state that I want, it sees the state, it updates it and then it applies it. So that's, I think that's one of my favorite features where you don't push changes you basically pull them um, and it's a very nice way of scaling things so when you add another system you don't have oh i have to update my pipeline to basically start pushing into this other target it's just like the target just knows like you just configure it oh hey just keep watching this and when there's a change pick it up and apply it so absolutely yeah i think that's a pretty powerful concept are there any projects that you can talk about or want to talk about Projects that like you're involved with, projects that you know are exciting, uh, projects that, that are going well, or the ones which you wish would go better. So, um, how does my professional life look like? I'm not being paid as a open source contributor <laughs> by some big tech, so I have my own company and I'm basically consulting um, customers in yeah, for instance, adopting cloud native journey. So. Mm-hmm. Do you mean that type of projects, like customers I'm working with? Yes, without mentioning any names, obviously. Okay, okay. But, you know, things that uh, are going well, uh, and you don't even have to mention the industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm mainly working in the finance industries and also public sector, so I can, can tell that. And uh, what I'm doing right now, I, I already mentioned it for one company which is working, uh, which is uh, in, in the finance sector. Mm-hmm. We're exploring that, I mean, that they have... Um, like public cloud strategy, they want to move everything into the into the cloud f- from on-premises uh, mm-hmm. solutions, and they're f- facing a couple of challenges, of course. And they also have like uh, huge security requirements. And mm-hmm. one thing is, uh, as I already mentioned, um, the whole salsa thing, where we try to rethink uh, the whole um, supply chain security mm-hmm. part. So that's that's one of the major projects I'm working on. Right now, there's also uh, quite some Terraform stuff involved in the public sector. So also the public sector. So let's say I specialized in, in consulting customers that are trying to adopt public clouds or cloud native concepts. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more in the public cloud sector right now. Mm-hmm. How do you get in, into the public cloud safely? So I'm working in the public sector there as well. Um, with a, like, um, how do we automate everything like provisioning um, cloud accounts and so on. Um, mm-hmm. What controls do we um, add? And there's a plethora of solutions that you can choose from. Mm-hmm. Policy as code, for instance, is such a thing which is really great. I mean, you can use OPA. Um, you have different uh, rule lang- languages like Rego or Q, and um, mm-hmm. 
we haven't leveraged everything of that yet, but um, we are starting to dig into those solutions and that they are pretty powerful. So OPA, for instance, it helped us to add guardrails to our infrastructure pipelines so that we don't delete um, resources, for instance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I haven't used OPA, but I, I it, keep, it keeps coming up. How are you finding Rego? Because many people complain about just how difficult it is to use it. When I looked at it, it just looks a bit funky, but I haven't used it myself. So it's like from afar. So it wasn't me uh, personally who, who wrote the Rego stuff, but the guys mm-hmm. who, who did it actually said, yeah, it's pretty hard uh, until it's up and running or if you can copy it from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But once it is in place, it's, it's really, really nice. So it has like you would describe it as, or like what I'm hearing is it has a steep learning curve, but once you go past it, it's fine. And it's like any other thing. Once you learn it, it's easy. Yeah. What, what you haven't solved yet is like um, Sixor also supports like using Q or Rego to do some like check uh, those manifests. And we haven't decided yet which way we want to go down. I remember you mentioned Q. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder which solution we will take for this specific um, problem. But at, at least we can choose from several solutions. <laughs> There is a recent talk that I've seen um, from FOSDEM 2022. Marcel and Paul um, are giving it about Q. I forget the exact title, but if you look it up, FOSDEM 2022 Q, you'll see um, how they... I really like the Kubernetes example, which they give with the schema and how they enforce certain constraints to what gets deployed in Kubernetes and how 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 they can add certain defaults as well. I thought that was interesting. So that's the one which I would recommend watching next. Okay. As we prepare to wrap this up, what is the key takeaway for our listeners? Sustainability, I would say. Think about sustainability. I'm, I mean, I'm not a missionary or I don't want to preach. I, as you said. Um, You're just doing it. <laughs> You're yeah, just doing just, it. I just, really like that. Yeah. And Just do it. And uh, yeah. If I wasn't as excited, I don't think we'd have told this story. But when I heard it, I was like, wow, there's something there. I have to tell that story. <laughs> because I was like, yeah, it's just like, it was okay. I mean, like you didn't think it was a big deal. And I love that. You were like, it's no big deal. It took me eight days. <laughs> so it's it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I cycled like a thousand plus kilometers. Actually, one, two, three, zero. I did the, I did the maths. <laughs> one, two, three, zero kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> And um, apart from like um, sustainability, I mean, uh, yeah, if you're an engineer, you're a puzzle solver. And um, I mean, this is the, the greatest puzzle we have to solve. Like, how do we tackle global warming? Mm. Now, that is a problem worth solving for sure. I hope that at this point, we're not still thinking that it's not real. I hope. I mean, some will, but I think those that number is like less and less by the day. So... If we can all agree that it's a problem worth solving, I'm very curious to hear others, how they solve it. Because I know that we have such a big role to play on the infrastructure side, on the app side, we can make them more efficient. We can auto-scale them or maybe use only as much as we need. We can do so many things there. We can use, maybe be more conscious about the languages that we choose. Some are more energy efficient than the others. There was a great uh, talk in the keynote, the KubeCon EU keynote from Intel, where they rank the various languages and they explain the carbon footprint that they have. Um, now, I'm not suggesting everyone switch to Rust or C because they are the most energy efficient <laughs> ones. Go is fine. Java 2, surprisingly, Java 2, very, very efficient. 
Uh, but there's something to be said about those. And there's something to be said about the choices, the small choices that we make every day, including that burger, which I may not have today <laughs> after our talk. I know that's like the worst food you can possibly have uh, to maybe cycling more versus, versus using the car. Well, thank you for today. It was a great pleasure to tell this story, uh, to relive a bit of that fun. We did cycle when we were in Valencia, yeah. all the way from our hotels, our respective hotels, where we were staying, all the way to the beach. That was a long one. It was, I think, about like an hour. And uh, it was fun. It was fun. That's, that's what I want to say, especially at night. That was the best. Yeah. Those scooters, they were so fast, like whizzing past us at night and like ding, ding. And phew, the scooter were like the, the electric ones. They were maniacs. Yeah, <laughs> we were like trying to have a conversation, which by the way, not maybe the best idea at 12 <laughs> o'clock at night as you cycle on a cycle lane. Uh, they weren't that wide, but still it was a lot of fun. And thank you for coming on today. Thank you for the great conversations at KubeCon. And I'm very much looking forward to meeting you again at Swiss Cloud Native Day, 14th of September. Everyone welcome, by the way, anyone listening to this, if you're around, if you're local to Bern, uh, France, Italy, Germany, close enough. You don't have to cycle, by the way, it's not a requirement. <laughs> you take the train or, or, or the plane, uh, that's okay too. I'll, I'll be flying, by the way. Hope to see you there. Thank you, Johan. Thank you for today. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for having me and yeah, Cloud Native Day in Switzerland. I mean, if you want to check out Tim Hawking, for instance, one of the fathers of Kubernetes, um, we have Thomas from, from Isovalent talking about Cilium Service Mesh, Priya from ChainGuard, which I'm pretty much excited about. We have also a Rust guy, Tim McNamara, who is doing mm. a, a Rust programming workshop. So that will be, I hope, amazing. Yes, thank you very much for that. Argo CD workshop, that's the one which I'm thinking like, oh, that sounds very interesting. Will they be in German or will they be in English, the workshops? Um, they will be um, in English, I think. It's left up to the to the workshop uh, speakers, but um, mm -hmm. all of them are capable of doing those in, in English. Yeah, they will be in English, yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to meeting you all there. See you in a few weeks, a month or two based on when this comes out. See you all. See you, Han. Yeah, pretty excited about it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning into another episode of ShipIt. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. The next three episodes are going to be a special trio, each building on the previous one. They share different perspectives on something that is on all of our minds. What does it take to build something amazing while keeping it fun and growing for many years? What does it take to lead and inspire teams of engineers? And the last one, how do you change the way the world builds software?